Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so some of uh, you have asked about next week. It is Easter, but it's going to be a normal Sunday for us. We'll have our ABFs in the morning and our service as usual. We will be doing baptisms, and it's the first Sunday of the month, so we will have communion. And well, I do hope that you invite friends. Uh, it's, what a great day of celebration, uh, the very cornerstone of our faith in the resurrection of Christ. So please do invite friends and family. We'd love to have everybody next week. So if you would, go ahead and open uh, up to Titus, and we're going to continue where we left off. Uh, I will say that everything that we've looked at up to this point in Paul's letter to Titus has been concerned with the conduct of Christians inside the church. He began, as you remember, by establishing elder governance to help shepherd and protect the members of the local body. Then he spoke at length about how healthy relationships were necessary to promote sound doctrine, how older men and women were to invest in the lives of younger men and women, relationships where the truth of God is being passed down from one generation to the next, each person sharing in the responsibility of making God real in the life of someone else. It's that ripple effect of relationships where we're all growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, the most important quality in the life of a believer is what? I mentioned it the last few weeks. This is a test. <laughs> Actually, for me, to see if I'm making any impact whatsoever. Remember, what, what's the most important attribute in the life of a believer? A teachable heart. A teachable heart. Somebody who's humble enough to be prompted by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit to, to learn how to say no to the wrong things. To learn how to say right yes to the right things. And encouraging one another towards love and good deeds. Living in a way that puts the gospel on display. Or as Paul has said in our passage, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Well, all that makes sense for how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But it should pose a question in our minds. That's great, but, but how do we relate to those who are outside the family of God? How do we love those who are not like us, who may not hold to the same beliefs and convictions? They might even prove to be more of an enemy than a friend. How do we honor those who lead us who are not led by the Holy Spirit? Now we're getting into some territory that has the, the power to make a, a tremendous impact in the world in which we live. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel. And I'm going to begin in verse 32. He says this. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. 
and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward is great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. See, Jesus is describing the distinguishing character, the conduct of a Christian in a fallen world. I think Paul is going to pick up on that very same topic and and address that topic as it relates to Titus and his leadership in the church in Crete. But I can assure you this, whether you're listening to the words of Jesus or as we will see this morning, the words of Paul, the very same same words apply to us. And if I could summarize it in one phrase, it would be this. We should behave like the one to whom we belong. The conduct of a Christian in a fallen world should be a reflection of God's love towards us. How we relate to others should ultimately be a reflection of how God loves us. And if that's true in our life and we live out what Jesus has called us to, we would be unique in a world where we don't see that happening very often. So this message, this passage that we will look at this morning has such tremendous value and significance to us in the world in which we live. So let's ask the Lord to guide and direct us this morning. Lord, we recognize the significance of your word every time we open this book because every word is inspired by you. It is without error, and it has the power of life. And so as we come to you this morning, we believe that's true, and we recognize that what is spoken here has great significance to this world in which we live right now. How is a Christian supposed to conduct themselves in a fallen world? Well, that applies to every person in this room who has chosen to follow you. So Lord, open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us see the things that you intend for us to understand to more faithfully follow you in a broken world. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Titus chapter 3, and we will begin in verse 1. Paul, turning his attention from inside the church to now outside the church, says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed. Now, if you look back one verse, in verse 15, you'll remember that Paul ended that previous section by telling Titus to use sound doctrine, to speak, to exhort, and to reprove or rebuke with all authority. But what he's saying there applies only to what's happening within the context of the church where the authority resides in Scripture. Not a person, not a particular office, but the Word of God. So that Titus is called to shepherd God's people according to the authority of God's Word. The authority resides in Scripture, not a person. And so he's telling them that that that's the rule of law within the life of the church. And that makes good sense in the life of the church. But what about setting? where the truth of God's Word, the the power of Scripture, doesn't have the same 
response. It doesn't have, it's not seen in the same way. Especially as he addresses here when you're talking about government officials and civil authorities. Now, I know we can argue all day long about how the the founding of our nation was built on Christian ideals and much of that is true. But I can assure you of this. The rule of government as we know it today is not based on the authority of God's word. Now, There are Christian men and women who serve in important roles and offices inside our government and in our civil authorities. And and we need people like that who would be people of influence in God's name in those difficult places. But the rule of law in this nation is not determined by biblical truth. Nor was it in the time of Paul either. Because if you look at Roman rule, what you'll find is that the Romans had slavery. The Romans had taxation that was unfair and unreasonable. Most of the cities were ruled by military occupation. They had legalized prostitution. And all of this was made possible because of the the laws that governed through the Roman Empire. Guess what? We have abortion. We have same-sex marriage. We have legalized marijuana. We have no-fault divorce. Even in our own Constitution, there's a very clear separation between church and state. And the reason that's true is because one is governed by the authority of God's Word and one is not. But despite this fact, Paul says that we should relate to the rulers and authorities, that we should be subject. He says three things. We should be subject. We should be obedient. We should be ready for every good deed. And if I were to look at those, I really think he's talking about our attitude, our actions, and our attentiveness to what's going on around us. First, he says, be subject. I look at that and I see it as an an attitude of of willing and humble submission to people in a position of rule or authority. That includes people we didn't vote for. That includes people we don't agree with. And quite frankly, it includes people that we just plain don't like. The command is not qualified by... Be subject to rulers and authorities just so long as you do what you, what you think they should. Is just so long as they do what you think they should. Because here's the deal. Every single person put into a position of authority was placed there by God. Now that's all throughout Scripture, but let me give you the clearest passage I can find in Scripture. It's Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And it says this. Let every person be in subjection to the government authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's pretty clear, right? Pretty straightforward. Now, please don't read that to mean that God always puts people in authority who will be good at leading others. 
Because we know all throughout Scripture and history, for that matter, that very often God puts bad people in positions of authority as a place of righteous judgment for those that they rule. Yes, God can accomplish a good outcome through a bad boss, through a foolish president, through a ruthless dictator. Because what they intend for evil, he can ultimately use for good. Because the bottom line is, all authority is supreme and complete in Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of all. We are subject to rulers and authorities, plain and simple, because of our reverence to God and our recognition that He alone is ultimately in control. Good passage to, to consider is uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Our attitude towards rulers and authorities in this world should reflect an honor and reverence of God as the supreme authority over our lives. He's the one we serve. He alone has authority, and we can always, always trust in Him. But this not only applies to our attitude, it applies to our actions as well. Paul says, be subject, and then he follows it and says, be obedient. You see, it doesn't matter if your taxes are unfair. (laughs) Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, don't cheat. It doesn't matter if you're in a job that's not paying you as you think it should. Don't steal office supplies and justify it because they're not paying you enough to begin with. Be a good employee, even if you're in a difficult situation. Because here's the reality. Very often, not always, but maybe most often, when we have a problem with authority, we really have a problem with God. You see, kids, young people, listen to me on this. If you cannot honor your mom and dad, the chances are you will carry that same attitude into your relationship with God. Learning to obey your parents is ultimately the first step in what it means to honor and serve the Lord. If you choose to dishonor your parents, I can assure you, you're going to carry the same attitude into your relationship with God. And that issue tends to hang on into adulthood. And and we see this when people go from job to job because they always have a problem with their boss. They go to church to church because they always have a problem with the leadership. Our actions towards those in authority are, our, are ultimately a reflection of our relationship with God. This is a hard issue. And so Paul says, because you serve the one and true living God, then be subject. Be obedient to rulers and authorities. 
be ready for every good deed. This is where I think he's talking about where we put our attention, where we put our mind. Instead of always complaining about what's wrong in the world, consider what you can do to, to make do something right. Of all people, Christians should be the most significant contributing members of the society in which we live. Instead of judging the homeless because they should just go out and get a job, let's feed the hungry. Let's feed the hungry. Instead of looking at criminals and saying, yeah, they're getting what they deserve, well, maybe you should walk into one of those prisons one day, hear their story, and see what you might help them do to turn their life around. After all, look at the life of Christ. Who did he spend time with? Was it not the broken and despised in the world? And if that's true for him, and we're called to follow his example, then why should it be any different for us? Christians should always be ready for every good deed. Digging a well in Guatemala. Feeding the homeless at Lubbock Impact. Volunteering at Park Ridge Pregnancy Center. Serving the refugees up in Eastridge. The fact of the matter is, there are no shortage of opportunities. We just need to put our energy into doing what is right instead of always complaining about what's wrong. Christians need to be subject. They need to be obedient. They need to be ready for every good deed. This is a part of our attitude. It's reflected in our actions. We, we see it in where we place our attention. But now Paul is going to turn from how this relates to a very specific group, those who are rulers and authorities, to now a much broader group. Look at verse 2. To malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. <laughs> so Paul just transitioned from the, the particular to now the very general, from, from rulers and authorities to all men, to every person, man and woman alike. Christian conduct in a fallen world applies to every single possible relationship in your life. And if you're a, a Christian, Paul says, malign no one now that's a little difficult for us malign is not a, a word that's common in our vocabulary these days it, it's a word that means the same thing as slander it's the basic idea behind gossip is the idea of injuring another person's reputation in order to promote your own it's slandering someone's character in order to justify your decisions well, that person's got some real problems. I mean, if you knew what I know, <laughs> you would have done the same thing. But let me say this. Gossip is not always seen in spreading mistruths. Very often, gossip can be shared by giving out information that could be true that should be kept confidential. Details that cause others to think less about someone else. Oh. You didn't know that was true? Well, have you heard? Oh, I could never imagine that would be true of that person. Oh, it's true. Believe it. It's injuring another person's reputation in order to promote your own. See, Paul's trying to make the point that the goal of the Christian life 
should be to lift people up, not to tear them down. We want to make their life better, not make it more difficult. What our mama told us is true. If you can't say something right, if you can't say something good, then don't say anything at all. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Christians are called to be uncontentious, he says. He says we're called to be gentle. And he says showing every consideration. Now let's start with the first one, contentious. Now a contentious person is someone who argues about everything. (laughs) And typically it's because they always have to be right. An uncontentious person, however, is willing to sacrifice being right in order to protect peace. See, I personally believe there's a lot of men who need to understand this principle in their marriage. You don't always have to be right. If you've ever seen the, uh, it's one of the funniest videos I've ever seen in my life, the woman with the nail in the head. There's literally a nail in her head, and she's complaining to her husband about this pain and difficulty, and he's looking at her going, it's probably the nail in your head. And she keeps saying, it's not about the nail. And she's right. An uncontentious person understands the value of the relationship as more important than proving their point about what they think is right. Showing every consideration literally means to demonstrate every possible humility. It's really simple. It's the biblical uh, calling to, to consider the needs of others is more important than our own. It's refusing to pay evil with evil. It's a willingness to to turn the other cheek. It's loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Now, you tell me, if every Christian were to live out these biblical principles faithfully, would that make an impact in the world in which we live? Maybe it would help to consider it from this perspective. When just one man lived out those principles, it was enough to change the world. Because all we're talking about here are the principles and practices that were lived out through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And one man ultimately changed the world. And so, yes, if we are called to follow him, then we should live out those very same principles and practices. And yes, it has the power To change the world. Look at verse 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The motivation of our behavior, Paul's point here is that the motivation of our behavior is not based on what the other person deserves. Our actions towards others is ultimately based on God's unmerited favor towards us. Because listen to me on this. You will not ever see something in another person, however bad you think that might be, that once was not true of you. You will never see something in another person, no matter how bad you think that is, that once was not true of you. Now, some may hear that and say, well, 
wait a second, I, I've never murdered someone, okay? I've seen somebody murder, and I've never done something like that. I think Jesus spoke to that. He says, if you have enough hate in your heart to call someone else a fool, then it's the same as taking their life. It's the same as murder. He says, if you have lust in your heart for another woman, it's the same thing as adultery. At its core, sin is a heart issue. And in the end, hear me, the judgment is the same. Sin is a heart issue. And in the end, the judgment is the same. The one who lusts will receive the same punishment as the one who commits adultery. The one who murders will receive the same punishment as the one who looks at another person with such hatred in their heart that they call them a fool. We have all walked according to Satan's influence in our lives. We were all ruled by sinful and selfish desires. We were a slave to sin, and we were powerless to break free. When Paul says we, he's including himself and us in this conversation. We were foolish, having been exposed to the truth, and yet unwilling to acknowledge that truth in our life. We were disobedient, unwilling to allow the rule of God to have authority in our own lives. We were slaves to to lust and selfish pleasures. Like we talked about last week, apart from Christ, you can't say no to sin. It rules your heart. Our selfish appetites then lead to to broken relationships. That's Paul's point as he continues and and talks about envy and jealousy and hatred. We see it in families when when kids rebel against their parents. We see it in, in an unrepentant heart that is unwilling to confess. We see it in adults who are always wanting something more than what they already have. And then when they get it, what happens? It never satisfies what they thought it would in the first place. Even though we all experience varying degrees of sin's corruption in our life, sin's consequence is the same for all of us. We experience varying degrees of sin's corruption in our life, but the consequence, the the condemnation is the same for all of us. The wages of sin is death, and there are no exceptions. An unrepentant heart is void of a life-giving relationship with God, both now and for all eternity. And make no mistake, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, foolish, deceived, enslaved. So you might be able to look at another person and say, well, I know I haven't done anything as bad as that. But apart from Christ, you will still end up in the very same place. God does not grade on a curve. He does not judge you based on a comparison with another person. His judgment is based on his perfect righteousness. And if we don't meet that standard, then the condemnation is the same for everyone. 
And I want you to just stop and let that soak in just a little bit. Controlled by Satan's influence. A slave to selfish desires. Powerless to break free. Deserving of God's wrath as a righteous, as a righteous and fair judgment against our undeniable guilt. A condemnation that cannot be overcome by good deeds. As you look across the sea of humanity throughout all of history, this reality applies to every single person who has ever lived. There is nothing you can see in someone else that once was not true of you. Now look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, much like I said last week, we could spend a whole series on these few verses because there is so much gospel goodness packed in to these few verses. It's amazing. But I'm telling you as, 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 as strongly as I can that verses 4 through 7 mean nothing if you cannot appreciate the gravity of verse 3. If sin's not all that bad, then salvation is not all that great. Much like last week, these words are the words of life. And there's really one word that stands out as most important to me. It's the three-letter word, but. But God. When the loving, the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. Now, this kind of goes back to what we had talked about last week, right? When the grace of God appeared, when the love of God was demonstrated, that all took place in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to rescue us from the domain of darkness. His life is the light of our salvation. Jesus saves us. Because even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was His sacrifice on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin. It was His resurrection from the dead that broke the power of sin's control. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that perfect standard of righteousness that is impossible for us to attain on our own? Well, when Jesus accomplished what God sent him to when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, demonstrating that perfect righteousness, he then credits that to you. That's why it says that you're an heir to the family of God. You have been adopted, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. You see, Paul describes it as the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. I love it when the Bible says the same thing a hundred different ways. And this is good to look at because it gives us a, a fresh look on a very common reality of our salvation. He says, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now just think about those words. What is washing? 
It's taking something dirty and making it clean, right? What is regeneration? It's bringing something that was once dead back to life. And what is renewal? It's like a renovation. In this case, it's a, a renovation of the heart, giving us new desires, shaping our, our perspective on life. What Paul is describing here is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We don't earn our salvation because of good deeds. We good, do good deeds as a result of our salvation. It is the outcome of Christ's work in our life. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It says in verse 6 that, that God poured His Spirit richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Some, some translations say that He poured it out generously. It, it's, it's the idea that it's over and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. See, God didn't just give you a, a sample, a, a little taste of His goodness, a little, a, a little experience of the Spirit just to kind of tempt you a little bit. No, it says he lavished it upon you so that you have more than you could ask or imagine. In fact, the scripture makes it clear, you have everything you need for life and godliness. As a child of God, think about this, as a child of God, you are lacking nothing that you need to faithfully follow Christ. Isn't that incredible? There is no struggle that the love of God cannot overcome in your life. There is no sin so big that His grace would not be extended to you in forgiveness as you approach Him with a humble and repentant heart. Because you have been justified by His grace. You have a heavenly inheritance. You've been given the hope of eternal life. You see, what Christ has done for you should dramatically impact how you relate to others, especially those who are outside the church. Because you, you have the answer to what ultimately their heart longs for most. So why wouldn't you share that in how you live? Sinners can be good to each other but Christians are good to those who hate them. They pray for those who persecute them. There is a distinctive character quality in the heart of believer that should stand in contrast to what you see in the world. And the only explanation is the power of the Spirit at work in the life of the believer. It's the only explanation. I think in this passage, Paul is trying to answer the question of, of what is the conduct of a Christian in a fallen world. He's, he's spoken to what it looks like inside the life of the church, but, but what about outside of that? Well, simply put, as I said in the beginning, it's learning to behave like the one to whom you belong. Where our actions towards other mirror, they mirror God's actions toward us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We love as we have been loved. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about how Jesus used the gospel to speak to social issues of his day. And let me just give you one example. Take slavery as an example. 
Now, slavery was a common reality in the time of Christ. Jesus knew it was wrong. You know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But Jesus doesn't address it as a political injustice. In fact, earlier in Paul's letter, we, we learned that he spoke about how the slaves are supposed to be obedient to their masters, right? And then we see in Ephesians and Colossians, it talks about how, how masters are supposed to, to care for and be kind to the slaves. So it appears as if maybe they're not really concerned about the issue. Let me tell you why that's not true. Both Jesus and the New Testament writers know that when the power of the gospel message is applied to living relationships, slavery will be abolished. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is applied to relationships between men and women, young and old, then slavery will be abolished. That was the message of Martin Luther King. If you go back and listen to his messages and what he preached during the civil rights, it was that message. For example, he said, hate will not drive out hate. (laughs) Only love will do that. In the same way that, that darkness cannot drive out darkness, light can only do that. Well, then hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. No matter how much they were oppressed, he said over and over again, we will not hate you. But you know what we will do? We will endure it because of our ability to suffer. Those are the words of a faithful Christian in a fallen world. We should speak to issues of social gospel, the social injustices through the lens of the gospel. We are a people who are governed by the authority of God's word. We live in a world We reside in a country where the same is not true. And despite what many believe today, our goal is not for the United States to become a Christian nation. The goal is for the Christian church to impact the world. An uncompromising Christian church to impact the world. Sometimes I think we give way too much attention to influencing those in power, and we lose sight of caring for those in need. If you go to James, he makes it really explicitly clear. True and undefiled religion is this. If you want to know what it means to be faithful in a relationship with God, to, to live out your faith in the world, he says pure and undeniable religion is this. To care for widows and orphans in their time of need, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, live a life of compassion without compromise. That's what it's supposed to look like. Be subject. Be obedient. Be ready for every good deed in your attitude, in your actions, in where you place your attention. The life of the Christian should reflect the love of our Savior. We should behave like the one to whom we belong. That is the conduct of a Christian in a fallen world. Now, just very practically, I want to highlight some things that have been mentioned to you already this morning that you can do just to live this out in simple ways. There's a white bucket back there for green kitchen scrubbers. Is that hard? 
No, but it's a good deed. So be ready for every good deed and go get some green kitchen scrubbers and let's help the children's home. It's not hard. Twice a year, two times a year, we serve the homeless in our community at Lubbock Impact. It's not hard. But if you've never done that before, you need to. It's a good deed. And you need to be ready to contribute. Because here's something I've realized over time, and I feel certain that most of you know this to be true. Sometimes when we get so introspective, when we think about our situation, our family, our life, we can be so burdened by the things that are weighing us down. But then when we go and serve the needs of someone else, those burdens aren't near as heavy as they once were. Because we realize that there's a whole lot of people out there in this world who are a whole lot worse off than we are. And if we can get our attention off of ourselves, many times that's what makes the biggest difference. So be ready for every good deed. One more I can think of is in a few weeks, Park Ridge Pregnancy Center is going to have a life walk. Well, Park Ridge Pregnancy Center is a ministry, a business that is trying to do a good deed. To care for young women in a very difficult scary, traumatic situation in their life. And they're trying to to guide them and care for them in that very difficult time. And let me tell you what, a, a, a ministry like that is being punished for their good deeds. I can assure you, here's just a couple of things that happen to them all the time. Listen to this. They'll get calls from those who oppose what they're trying to do to, to try to bait them into saying something that could be then used in an incriminating way because that conversation's being recorded. And then it'll be publicized. The other thing that they'll do is they'll go onto their website and do reviews, pretending to have been a client and telling all these terrible things about what took place in that clinic, and they never walked in the door. And it's happening every single day. So when you have somebody like them who's trying to do a good deed, and they have an opportunity for you to pitch in to come alongside them, then you should do that. That's what we should be about as believers in Jesus Christ. Because if we're living out Luke 6 that I read to you at the very beginning, then I can assure you that we don't blend in with everybody else. But we stand out as a people who are unique, and there's only one explanation. We serve the one true living God. We are saved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we love in the same way that he has loved us. That should be our mark. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is the authority in our life. It is what you've called us to live by. It is the hope. It is salvation. It is everything that our heart longs for most. And yet, Lord, we live in a world and in a time when perhaps because of ease and comfort of our day, it's easy to get lost in our own situations, our own burdens, our own families, our own difficulties, and we lose sight of the world around us and the mission that we've been called to serve. And so, Lord, maybe because of the power of your word and the work of your spirit in our hearts, there would be something prompted within us to turn our eyes from ourselves, to look at the needs of those around us, and to serve those needs is more important than our own. To love others in the same way that you love us. To forgive others in the same way that you have forgiven us.
Jesus, you saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There is nothing that we see in, our, in someone else's life that wasn't once true of us, but you rescued us from the domain of darkness, and you transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. May we now live in this world, which is not our home, because we are citizens of heaven. May we live in this world in a distinguishing way, not where we love those who love us, but we love those who persecute us. We pray for those who hate us. We extend affection towards those who don't really care. We even give to those expecting nothing in return. Because that's what you called us to. Because that's who you are. And may we live that out faithfully. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.